Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Money in the church, touchy topic. And uh, tonight we come to part five of our teaching on money and possessions. And this is the 10th floor, which means we've arrived at the point where it's time to address the subject of tithing. <laughs> now, in a crowd this, of this size and diversity, I'm guessing that the word tithe evokes different feelings in different people. Some of you are like, what? How do you even spell that? <laughs> what in the world's a tithe? T-I-T-H-E. Ne- never heard of that before. If you didn't grow up in the church or just returning, tithing may be a foreign concept to you. Um, and others of you are groaning inwardly, not like the Holy Spirit, but groaning because you're like, oh, here it comes. I knew it, shakedown time. Uh, I'm surprised Tim is not get his hair jacked up even higher. Uh, I knew liquid was too good to be true, and it's inevitable. Here comes a message how I'm not giving enough to the church, you know. And you're inwardly, you know, just bracing for a healthy dose of, like, shame, guilt, and compulsion. Well, let me just kind of set your mind at ease, because that's not what this is about. In fact, let me just kind of get a sense of where each of you are coming from the topic of tithing. Raise your hand if you've actually heard that term before, tithe, tithing, okay? Oh, wow, good, okay, about three-quarters, two-thirds. Now, keep your hand raised if if you consider yourself overchurched. That that means, like me, you grew up in the church and were introduced maybe to that concept, okay, early on. I can't say for me it was the most positive experience. I remember it actually vividly because it was the first time I was entrusted with money of my own. I was a boy of actually about 9 or 10, and some of my friends at school had started receiving allowances. And that was quite something. Uh, I remember one of my friends, his name was David Basso. He like became the de facto king of the fifth grade because he got a $2 a week allowance. And he used to use it to take us to Plains Pharmacy, the local drugstore, to stock up on candy at lunch. He'd buy like six packs of Skittles, you know, the rainbow-flavored goodness. And we'd fill up on sugar thanks to David's allowance. And, and another friend got a buck, and he flashed out around the classroom, so I figured it's time. I'm going to ask my dad for an allowance. I don't even think I knew what an allowance was, but I waited until after dinner one night and then gently kind of raised the topic with my dad. And I saw him like kind of look over at my mom, who was like washing dishes at the time with one of those, here we go, kind of looks. But to my surprise, said, yeah, you know what, Tim? You're right. It's time. This Saturday, we'll start you with an allowance. How does $1 sound? And I was like, one dollar. <laughs> Actually, it sounded, it sounded pretty good to me. It wasn't, you know, David Basso Skittles rich, uh, but it was a start. And so when Saturday morning came, I was up and at him ready for my allowance. But my dad was like, actually, you got to wait till Saturday night. And I didn't know why, but, but that night he came into my room and I was like ready. And I had borrowed one of my brother's old wallets, one of those Velcro jobbers, you know. I was like, this is it, my passage to manhood. I'm going to be a cold, hard, cash-carrying kind of man from here on out. And to my surprise, my father handed me a little change purse, <laughs> one of those little plastic squeegee things. And, and I protested. I was like, but I thought you said you were going to give me $1. And my dad said, I am, just not a bill. Here's your dollar. And I squeezed that change purse open, and there they were, all 10 of them, 10 shiny new dimes. Everyone go, woo. It was like, cool, thanks, Dad. You know, Plains Pharmacy takes dimes. It's so three packs of Skittles on Monday, no doubt. All right. But as my dad was leaving my bedroom, he said ominously, ominously he said, um, hey, just, just make sure that you uh, bring that change purse to, uh, to church tomorrow. And he closed my door. And I was like, bring it to, to church? And I should have known something was up. But nevertheless, I remember sitting in the, in the, in the backseat of my parents driving to church, just kind of shaking those dimes in my hand, all ten of them, just envisioning how great this is going to be, have my own spending cash at school. Well, as we pull into the parking lot, we're about to get out, and my dad goes, hey, just wait a minute, um, I'm kind of curious. And he looks in the rearview mirror, like one of those dad-son, like, rearview mirror conversations. And he goes, so, um, so have you decided what, um, what you're going to put uh, into the offering this morning? <laughs> no, I was like, oh, no, I had not counted on this. The offering, of course. The moment in the service where they pass the plate and all the grown-ups pretend to look for their wallet. Oh, no, I'm getting sucked into this. You mean i got to put something in too? And my dad is like, well, you don't have to put in anything. It is your, it is your money after all, my dad said. But you know, everything we have and we're given is a gift from God. And he tells us in the Bible the right thing to do is to show him our thanks and give 10% back to him. And I was silent for a moment because I'm, 
I wasn't the sharpest crayon in the, in the bunch, all right? And I don't do math that great. <laughs> and I'm like, 10%? And, and I'm like, I'm not good with math, Dad. I pled ignorance. And my dad already factored that in. He goes, that's why I gave you 10 dimes. Because <laughs> you know what 10% of 100 is? <laughs> and I'm just like, all I could think, honestly, was about, like, yeah, about a two-thirds a bag of Skittles, <laughs> you know? My dream of fifth-grade sugar rush was going right down the drain. And, and he was like, no, you know, I mean, I said, I get it, I get it. 10 cents one dime. And we went inside. Quite honestly, I don't remember anything about the church service that day because while, while people sang and stuff, my fingers were like just nervously like clutching those dimes in my front pocket. But when we sat down, I started sweating as I thought the collection is going to happen right before the message. A whole dime. And it wasn't just a dime. It was what it represented. And this is going to date me, but at that time, candy was like 33 cents a bag. And they didn't charge uh, tax at planes. So if you had a buck, do the math, you could get three bags of Skittles with one penny left over. So 90 cents, you know what that gets you? Yeah. Two bags with 24 cents for, like, nothing. Because <laughs> everything's 33 cents. So I thought, this is going to hurt. And it did. Because it came time right before the message, and that offering plate comes down the row. And I remember my parents putting in their check, and then it came to me. And I was, like, gripping to my little stack of dimes, and my mind was racing. I was like, maybe I could, like, like make change, like, you know, <laughs> and only give a nickel or something. But, but there it was, and just, you know, kind of... I'm just like looking and I can see my father's doing peripheral vision stuff and I'm just like oh I gave a dime 10% of my allowance welcome to church life <laughs> as you can imagine uh, as my allowance grew the task actually became like more complicated when it hit $1.75 in the 8th grade dad gave me a calculator to figure out percentages thanks dad <laughs> And, uh, and so it went. I even remember one Saturday night in the 8th grade trying to like, do the math and figure out what 10% of like 225 was because now we're dealing with fractions. And so early on, I thought tithing was really one thing, a painful test. <laughs> a, a test of my basic math abilities, yes, but a test of my willingness to be a good Christian. <laughs> a test is always painful, right? More for God, less candy for me. <laughs> and what's funny is that that's often how many adults experience tithing. As a childlike test, that's at times painful, a little bit infantilizing, and a cause of tremendous discomfort in our church. I mean, we get enough tests at school, at work, now we have to do them in church? No thanks. Well, my understanding of tithing actually progressed and changed in college. In college, I didn't always go to church regularly, so that relieved some of the pressure when the offering plate came around. But when I did, I usually put something in, but it was more of a tip than a test. That is, I'd rifle through my pocket or wallet, and I'd usually drop in a token amount. Something, you know, very polite. Okay? Again, I didn't have a lot of money in college. usually carry around 10 bucks or so, but I'd make sure I dropped in like a buck or two. All right, maybe just a buck. <laughs> I graduated. I could do the math now. But it was a tip, an afterthought. And as you know what there's a problem with tipping, it's how you feel based upon how someone serves you. So if I liked how the service was going, Jay, thank you. I really enjoyed Rain Down. Here's a little something extra for the doxology. That was nice. <laughs> I just kind of dropped it in there based on how the service was. Because you're serving me, right? Absolutely. And I even based how I felt like with God. If I felt close to God, I gave generously. If I didn't or was disappointed with the way things were going in my life, eh, you know, send a little message to him. Uh, <laughs> in fact, there are many times... That I received larger gifts. You know, at Christmas, I get like a check for 100 bucks from my like, you know, aunt. And, and I'd spend most of it. And I came to church. Well, the least I can do is chip in five bucks if I have it. Just an afterthought. That's what a tip is. It occurs after you've consumed something, a meal or a service. It's whimsical based on, on what you've got or how you're feeling at the time. So my concept of tithing, as you can see, was maturing. Evolving from test <laughs> to tip. And then finally, once I got a job, to religious tax. <laughs> I remember this well because I was working in the city as a, an editor of transcripts, and it was the first time I received actually an adult paycheck, and it was more than 10 dimes. It was more than 100 bucks. It wasn't a ton, but it was a decent salary, and I finally felt like an adult. I was like, I have earning power. And as a, any young person with their first job knows, when you learn what your salary is going to be, the, the, you, you begin dreaming of what you're going to do with that first check. If, you, if, you, if it's, you know, $30,000 a year is your, is your income, you know, your wage, you're like, I'm going to get $3,000 in that first check. And then you get it, and it ain't nearly near that. 
right? Where did it all go? And I remember actually walking into the office of the gal who handled payroll for the company and politely informing her of the mistake that was made with my weekly check. <laughs> no, no, no. She very politely explained to me what all those letters stood for, FICA, <laughs> withholding Social Security, workman's comp. And I like zoned out when she told me that I actually had the rare joy of a quadruple tax whammy. As someone living in New Jersey and working in New York City, I had the privilege of being taxed four times. Federal tax, New Jersey state income tax, New York state tax, and a special city state tax for you. Welcome to the working world. <laughs> you know, you can imagine my thoughts then the first Sunday I went to church, church after, you know, what's left of my first paycheck, and here comes the offer. I'm like, oh, great, tax number five, religious tax. Here you go. Ever take it. <laughs> I was happy to give 10%, right? But by this time, I started getting savvy. I actually started looking for the loopholes. I started interested in the math. For instance, if I give based on what's left over, my net income, after the government, everyone else takes everything out, I'll get, God will get 10% of what's left. Plus, I don't make it to church all the time, and, and well, you know, I'll, I'll catch up later. I'll, I'll write a big check down the line, yeah. Not surprisingly, that didn't happen too much either. Bottom line, every time I went to church, just out of college, the experience of tithing evolved from a test to a tip or a tax. Can you identify with any of those feelings? I mean, how do you think about giving in church when I raise the topic, when I even brought up the word tithe? I mean, you can see each of them causes its own problem. A test causes anxiety, seems more to play with your head than your heart. A tip, it's all about being a consumer. You pay based on the service you're receiving. Merit-based, totally up to the way you believe someone's performing for you. Or a tax. I mean, what do you what exactly feel when you hear the word tax in any context? Especially this time of year. Ugh. Roll the eyes. Necessary evil. Grim duty. Not a joy, that's for sure. Where, where, would you, where would you put yourself in this when you think about tithing? What's been your experience? Well, let me ask you this. When do you actually give? I casually asked that question to a couple of friends this week, and the responses were t- telling. One friend said to me, well, I give when I can, Tim. Meaning, when the conditions are right. When I, I have some money in my pocket. When it's... Another sister said, well, I give what I can. What I feel, you know, is reasonable. What's, what's proportionate, you know? Another friend said, well, I, I, I'll be honest with you, Tim. I appreciated her candor. She said, I, I give when I remember. <laughs> you know, it's not on my mind, like going to church. I have my checkbook with me. It's not a foremost priority. But I love this one, and maybe you've heard this one. Is, um, this one is the very spiritual one. I, you know, it's all up to the Holy Spirit. I give when I feel moved. <laughs> right? You know, there's that, that sense of kind of whimsy. Yeah. Or, be honest, I give when I have to, out of obligation. If you put the big red thermometer up there, you know, and start, start raising it, saying we're going to, you know, pave the parking lot, all right, I'll give. Um, yeah. Well, in contrast to those three approaches to tithing, it's only been recently that I've honestly discovered that tithing, according to the Bible, was never supposed to be a test, nor a tax, nor a tip. Rather, tithing, when you rightly understand it, according to the Bible, is supposed to be one of the most liberating on-ramps to growth and joy, I know, in the Christian life. Now, don't roll your eyes just yet. Hear me out on this, okay? When we started this series on money and possessions, we confess that many of us here are pretty actually discontent in one way or another with our personal finances. Either we feel we don't have enough or we need more, we're not getting what we deserve, or we just can't keep up, keep up with the Joneses. And somewhere in the manic race to upgrade, supersize, and live large, we said there's a casualty. Our faith and our trust in God actually withers. As Jesus put it bluntly in Matthew 6, 24, he said, you just can't do both. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, most of us are aware there are competing interests for our hearts at play in daily life. And there's the sobering realities of real life on one hand, right? Sense of scarcity or duty, greed, keep it for myself. While on the other hand are those elusive qualities we all like yearn for. Oh, happiness, contentment. What would it be like to really feel content? Joy, huh? That's a scarce commodity in this world. And we all know you can't put a price tag on those. I mean, even secular folks, you can't buy happiness. Money is not the only thing. But as John D. Rockefeller said, it runs a pretty close second. (laughs) Well, as I've spent some time just trying to really reconstruct what the biblical design for generous giving is, I've discovered something amazing. Tithing, far from being a a source of anxiety, guilt, or resentment, it's an on-ramp to the joy that many of us are kind of actually desperate to experience. I know it sounds funny, like parting with money and like joy. 
If nothing else, this series is starting to wake some of us up to the futility of consumerism. I can tell from many of your blog posts and and emails to me that you're hungry for more than a life of just unsatisfying material acquisitions. You know, money's great, but what, what does it mean to truly invest myself? I mean, wealth can be helpful, but what's the purpose behind what I've been given? I was talking with a guy this week. He's like, Tim, I'm making more money now than I ever have a right to make or ever thought I'd ever make. And I'll be honest with you. I'm looking for, like, why me? I know some of you are like, come talk to me. I'll be your reason. <laughs> for too many of us, we don't know. And we set our sights too low when it comes to using money as a means to joy, as a means to partnering with God and making a difference in this world for eternity. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Folks, there's more than scraping by with what we have or trying to figure out strategies to keep what we can for ourselves. Saying this life is about comfort, spending, acquiring, consuming more stuff. It's like making mud pies in a slum when it comes to what we can actually do with our money the way God designed it. There's something much better than what we set our sights on as like Western Christians. And, and, and look what Lewis calls it, the infinite joy. And tithing is an on-ramp to it. That's right. One of the most precious commodities in the world. What do you think of when you hear the word joy? Joy, like a, a young child, right? Just pure, unbridled, like mirth and like just ecstasy. Is, 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 it's directly connected to understanding this key spiritual concept rightly. And so that's what I want to do tonight. Just spend some time maybe introducing you for the first time or reintroducing you to the discipline of tithing. And we're going to do that through the lens of the Old Testament. That's actually the best place to start because that's where the concept of tithing is first introduced. You'll find the first mention of this misunderstood art in Leviticus 27, verse 30. And I'd invite you to take a pew Bible you can um, and follow along with me. We're going to be skipping through a little bit to some uh, a survey here of the Old Testament before we get into the New. And uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, it's that, it's that third... Uh, Third book of the Bible. And God is instructing the people of Israel this way. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Okay, we'll stop right there. This is where the, fir- the word tithe is actually introduced in the Bible. And the, the literal meaning of the word tithe, T-I-T-H-E in Hebrew, is a tenth part. That's literally the meaning of it. John Ortberg notes that people tend to use the word tithe kind of loosely today. They may speak of, you know, I tithe $10 a week when actually their income is $50,000 per year. Now, for the math impaired among us like me, giving $10 a week would be tithing only if your income were $100 a week. The Israelites were raised on the practice of tithing or giving 10% of everything that their labor produced, whether grain or fruit or money, back to God. And to them, tithing clearly meant 10%, not 2% or 4%. Now, there were free will offerings too, but the 10% was mandatory. God ordained from the beginning of his relationship with his people in the Bible. Now, the key thing to understand is that God didn't ask his people actually for any old 10%. There was a specific 10% that he desired his people to give. Anyone know? The first 10%. Skip over to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. And you'll notice here... It's written, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the, what's the word? Everyone read together. First fruits of all your crops. So strategically linked to the Old Testament concept of the tithe was this concept of first fruit giving. Where the word tithe stresses the exact amount, 10%. The giving of first fruits actually emphasizes the primacy of who is giving it. That God is the giver of all we have. That is, when we tithe the first 10% of what we earn, we're declaring that God is the giver of our harvest. Now, I realize most of us aren't farmers, and you can see the references to grain, fruit, and crops. They were an agrarian people, the Israelites. But that can obviously be understood in a modern context to mean that we give the first 10% of our earnings back to God, the first fruits of our labor. And if that sets off alarms in you, like, okay, why is God after my money? my money, then it's revealing because it means you don't truly believe yet that foundational truth of stewardship that we got to early on, that God is the owner of everything 
and we are just his money managers. That God owns everything we have and that he's actually designated us to be stewards. That's what a steward is. It's literally a slave who the owner gives stuff to and says, I want you to do right with this. I'm trusting you with my possessions. If we truly believe that what we've been given is, is, is God's to begin with, then actually returning the 10% to the original owner is actually nothing at all. If I earn $30,000 but believe it's God who's allowed me to do that, then giving back 3000 to him is actually no stress. And then it extends proportionally. If God's given me the ability to earn 300000 then giving 30000 to his work is just natural. But here's the deal. We all know this is not natural. <laughs> Our natural default is to, you know, mimic the immortal words of that great 80s pop song. I made this money. You didn't. I can do what I please. It's my prerogative. Bobby Brown fans in the house. Thank you for that. I've been waiting five years to quote Bobby Brown. Oh, this is the night. You, perhaps, perhaps it's your prerogative. You made this money. No one else did. But you're directly contradicting the most fundamental truth of Scripture. God's ownership of the world and everything in it, including you and what's in your wallet. In Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18, the people are actually warned. You may be saying to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. God actually had to offer a corrective to the Israelites, reminding them that everything they had, including everything you've worked so hard to acquire through like schooling, work, education, training, endless hours, overtime, that's actually a gift to you from him. He's the bestower of your most basic talents, of your intellect, of your skills, of your physical strength, of mental abilities. Do you, do you believe that? Do you have the sense that when you are handed your paycheck, it literally is like God saying to you, here, this is from me to you. That's mine. But I'm entrusting it to you as a gift. Now, in recognition of that, I want you to give back to me 10%. But you, get this, keep 90 Why? First, it's my gift to you. It's, this is, nothing pleases me more than to take care of my children. But second, it's an invitation. I, I want to meet your basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, all of that. But then I want to invite you to partner with me in meeting the needs of other people who are in lack. You're my money manager, remember? I trust you with my resources. You trust me as the primary owner? Are you willing to return the first 10% as a way of signifying that? That's the principle of first fruit giving. When we believe all we have is truly a gift from God, then we have no problem honoring him with the first and best of what we've been blessed with. For Israel, it meant the first and best of the wheat that they harvested, the first and best of all the wool that they shared, the first and best of the fruit that they gathered. Everything was collected, counted, and then the first and the best 10% was like skimmed off the top and given to God before anyone got their paws on it. And you realize the simple message of first fruit giving is that God deserves better than leftovers. And that's in direct contrast to the mentality that regards tithing as a tip or an afterthought. Tithing is not a final tip of what's left over, but a first fruit tenth of what we're given. If you think about it, first fruit giving is actually a pervasive theme throughout all of Scripture. Back in Genesis 4, flip back a little bit, we're told that the early story of Cain and Abel, remember the two brothers? They both brought offerings in Genesis 4. Look at verses 2 through 5. They brought offerings before the Lord with dramatically different outcomes. It reads, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. So one's a rancher, one's a gardener. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel in his offering, but on Cain in his offering, he did not look with favor. Now the text doesn't tell us exactly why God, you know, received Abel's offering with favor but rejected Cain's. But there's a hint in the text. Note the words about Cain's approach. Look at the first um, five words there. In the course of time. That is, once he got around to it, he remembered to bring something before the Lord. You know, said that there's any urgency or that it was a priority for Cain to immediately bring the, the prime produce to God. On the other hand, it says, Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. 
So in contrast to his brother, Abel said, you know what? All I've got is from the hand of God. And so I'm going to give back to him the prime cut, the most healthy, thriving, firstborn sheep in my flock. Before anyone else touches them, it goes to my God. And we're told God honored Abel for his first fruit offering. But look with disfavor on Cain's. The principle actually extends, when you think about it, to many areas of the Christian life. What are we supposed to give back to God in terms of our week? The first day of the week, right? Sunday, that's why we're here. We set aside, give back to God. We devote it to worshiping him, spending time with him and his people as a first fruit. Before the week even starts, that's why I'm here. On a micro level, that's supposed to actually trickle down to the first moments of our day. Many of us know the fruits of morning devotions, right? We're encouraged to actually give to God the first aspects of our day, first moments in prayer or Bible study or scripture meditation. Why? Why the first fruits? How's it go? How's your prayer life at night? <laughs> right? We give that prime time to God because we give ourselves to our, when we give ourselves to our work and the responsibilities and distractions of the day, they just crowd in on us. You ever tell yourself, like, I don't have time in the morning. I'm going to read the Bible at lunch today. Yeah, does that happen? <laughs> Or I'd like to pray, you know, first thing in the morning, but it's always crazy, so I'll pray at night before bed. Yeah, how'd that go? Your head is asleep before you even hit the pillow, right? It's like, dear Lord, (laughs) leftovers. It's no wonder that God puts the emphasis on giving first fruits. He's not content with leftovers. And that extends to our time, our talents, and most directly to our money and possessions when it comes to giving. Tithing is not a final tip of what's left over, but a first tenth of what we're given. All right. Second thing scripture reveals about tithing is that actually it's not just not a tip, but it's not a tax intended to generate resentment. Rather, scripture says tithing is a training exercise for your heart. Why? Intended to increase your capacity for joy. In other words, why don't many of us have the joy of the Lord in our lives? Because our heart couldn't quite contain it at this point. And actually God gives us the discipline that says if you exercise this, you're going to increase your capacity for what I'm going to pour out on you. Now, there's an unmistakable connection in Scripture between tithing and actually the vitality and joy in one's spiritual life. And this runs counter to culture, which says, you know what? I think actually I I, I know where I would get joy from, Tim. I would finally be joyful when I increase my, you know, position, get get a kind of a a raise or maybe an upgrade in my pay or in my title or my possessions. When I get the promotion, get the job, get a bigger home, then I'll be full of joy, happy. No, no. Not so Scripture teaches us. That's what the world says. On the contrary, as we saw with the Macedonian Christians last week, it's when we give extravagantly, giving away, that we find our lives are filled with the most authentic, lasting joy of God's Spirit. There was someone who said sometimes something about, he who gives away his life will find it, but he who keeps his life will lose it. Some rabbi or something. Throughout the Old Testament... Whenever the Israelites' hearts were kindled with a spirit of worship to God, they just like overflowed with contagious expressions of generosity. Free will offerings exceeding any tithe. In fact, on one occasion, this is fascinating, I love this one, their joy was so great that their giving actually got out of hand and had to be restrained. Flip over to this. This is Exodus 36, verses 4 through 7, which describes how devoted the Israelites were to constructing the tabernacle, their church, their church sanctuary for God. And once they got into the rhythm and practice of giving to support God's work, it's like a spirit of joy infected them and they couldn't stop. Look at this. Exodus 36, verse 4 through 7. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. Interesting that they brought them in the morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and they said to Moses, um, yeah, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work of the Lord that the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more, because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Catch this. (laughs) The experience of giving to their place of worship was so joy-inducing that Moses, the like pastor type, literally had to put his foot down. He's like, no more. No more giving to God, please. Call off the dogs, people. Would you please keep it to yourselves? Stop bringing it to the Lord. Can you imagine (laughs) a church today where they had to call the police because there's an outburst of uncontrolled giving? Yeah, whatever. 
But this is what happens, Scripture tells us, when the joy of the Lord infects his people. Giving to his work is not seen as a religious tax, but a joy-filled privilege. And if this sounds familiar, it is, because we're doubling back here on our teaching from 2 Corinthians last week, where we saw the open-handed giving. Remember, at the Corinthians and Macedonians, it was stimulated by supernatural joy. They counted it a privilege to give out of their poverty. Remember, they pled with us for the chance to give. What? Why? Because they gave themselves first to God. It was an act of worship and then to men that blessed others. But most importantly, we learned that it's all about attitude, not the amount. See, although the word tithe literally means a tenth part, God is just as concerned about the spirit behind our giving. And now let me just take an uncensored attitude check. What is your attitude? When you're, like even tonight, when you heard, oh gosh, it's the message on money. <laughs> Do you roll your eyes? Or the plate is passed around for tithes and offerings, you kind of zone out or you feel guilty. Do you groan? And reluctantly reach for your wallet or purse, or give out an obligation, scrounge up a couple bucks to throw in so you don't feel like guilty or look like the rest of the church people? Or do you rejoice? Oh, okay, the music's over. Good, now I can give. I know, it sounds nuts, right? But literally experiencing it as a supreme act of worship that actually gives you pleasure? As 2 Corinthians 9, 7 invited us last week, Paul wrote, each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a, everyone, cheerful giver. Again, there's that emphasis on joy. On the overflow of God's spirit into your being. It just, it wells up. It's like the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He gave his firstborn son for me. That in my poverty, I could become rich. An heir in the family of God? It like penetrates you and it wells up in a way that you can't help but want to give back to others in tangible ways. It's not about groaning or reaching for your wallet. There's like no room for guilt or manipulation in this. If you give out a guilt or manipulation, just don't give. Don't. It's cheerful giving. The joy of actually becoming more like your father and opening your hands to others. But I should also make a caveat with this verse because this doesn't mean you should give only when you're feeling cheerful. <laughs> you know, because like some people I think kind of abuse this and they're like, God loves a cheerful giver. I don't know, Tim. My heart's just not in it tonight, I think. Yeah, I just kind of wait, kind of wait for that joy to hit me, Right? The reality is that the cheerfulness and joy when it comes to giving often comes during or after that act of obedience towards God. Think about it. Remember how Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He didn't say, where your heart is, then your treasure will follow. (laughs) Or if a person's heart is right, then they'll give. He said, when you invest your money in something, guess what? Your heart follows it. It comes after This is an on-ramp to pursuing the joy of the Lord. Give and watch it follow. Why does joy naturally follow first fruit giving? In his helpful study, Giving, Unlocking the Heart of Good Stewardship, John Ortberg highlights several. He says, every time I tithe, I remind myself of one thing, that God is on the throne, not me, not money. Ooh, need that one on a bumper sticker, right? Come on. Because part of it, it makes you go like, oh, I want to be on the throne. But part of it is actually very liberating. Yeah, I'm not in charge. It's all coming from God, not me, not money. In many ways, God intends tithing to be like a spiritual discipline, just like you exercise other organs in your body, to help us train our hearts, enlarge them away from materialistic tendencies, and open up to God's joy. Every time I tithe, I reinforce that all I have is from him. The tithe is not a tip for good service, as though God were like some helper I can patronize. He's the owner. <laughs> I'm the steward. Every time I tithe, I make a declaration, actually. I will trust you, God, even when trusting doesn't feel easy or natural. (laughs) It's a deposit, actually, in our relational account with our Father. We're believing that he's going to provide, even when we're faithful stewards. This this is going to cost me. Tithing is not easy for everybody. I know that. Some of us are unemployed. Some of us don't have a lot. But God says this isn't about the money. I don't need your money. (laughs) I need your heart. Every time I tithe, I'm reminded, even as I calculate the amount of how much I've been given, I count my blessings, I love this, in doing so, I put to death, or at least injure, the monster that is affluenza. That materialistic grip is loosened on you. 
And your priorities start coming in line with God's priorities, your agenda with his. And, and, and what happens? A sense of contentment and satisfaction, which money can never buy, begins to just pervade your spirit. Indeed, tithing is not supposed to be a grim duty like a tax that generates dread. Rather, tithing is a training exercise intended to increase our heart's capacity for the joy of the Lord. And this brings us to the final key concept behind first fruit tithing. You'll notice, by the way, that each of these biblical principles is a corrective to my ill-informed attitudes about the subject. It's not a final tip. It's a first tenth. It's not a tax-inducing resentment, but a discipline-producing joy. My very first impression of tithing as a boy was that this was a test of me. Not just math skills, but of the sincerity of my faith. I thought, well, I need to do this if I'm going to be considered a good Christian. Because what all those church people do, they tithe. (laughs) This is a test of my generosity. Wrong. Scripture teaches us this is a test not of our generosity, but of God's. Turn with me to the final book in the Old Testament, Malachi. Or as Jersey Christians like to say, Malachi, the Italian prophet. This is the last, the last book in the Old Testament here. Malachi was a prophet in Jerusalem. And his words to the Israelites served as a corrective to their prodigal ways. This is Malachi 3, verses 7 through 10. Again, you know, the Israelites are not model church folks. They just forsook God over and over. Rejected his invitation to a trust-based friendship. And instead decided to fend for themselves. They're like, we're going to make it big in our own terms, in our own timetable. In fact, they abandoned God. In one vital way, though, that really raised the ire of the Lord. Now, remember, as we've learned, the God of the Bible is generous, gracious, forgiving God. He gladly actually welcomes back all people who turn to him in humility and repentance. doesn't matter if you have a dime in your pocket or 100 grand in the bank. But in this excerpt, God is inviting Israel to return to him after being away for some time. Maybe you're just returning to God tonight. And you're back in, and you're like, I heard this was a, a church where I could just kind of begin that journey back to God. Well, this is where it starts with the Israelites. It says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tenth into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now listen to this. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Stop there. Powerful passage. It begins actually with an accusation by God against his people. They want to draw close to him, but he says, no, you draw close to me, you rob me. How do we rob you? Strong words. Verse 8, in tithes and offerings. And you can see the text, there's a distinction being made here between mandatory giving and voluntary gifts. That is, God says, you withhold from me the most basic thing, tithes, the mandatory 10% of your first fruits. You don't even give what's minimally required. But you also withhold offerings, The voluntary gifts that I want you to generously give to others in need who I put in your way. Tithes and offerings. That's actually where we get that phrase from. As a boy, have you ever heard that tithes and offerings? As a boy, I always thought it was a redundancy. And now our ushers will come forward to receive our tithes and offerings. I thought that was like, you know, I'll have the salad and the lettuce as well. No. (laughs) Two different things. Tithes. The first 10% that we're give to God is supposed to be the starting point. For a lifestyle in and out of church that becomes regular sacrificial giving. We started this two weeks ago when we started that affluenza offering on behalf of single moms and needy families in our congregation. That was not a tithe. That was an offering or a voluntary gift by those of us with resources to have the chance to bless sisters and brothers in need who are right here among us. It's grace giving. Totally spontaneous expression of generosity in response to special needs. An offering. But we learn here that God intends that there be both kinds of giving from his people. Regular tithing, 10% of our earnings, as well as spontaneous giving. A special needs arise or God's spirit prompts us. So quick check. Don't have to answer out loud. How are you doing in those two categories? If we looked at your checkbook registry, 
or QuickBooks or Quicken <laughs> on your computer, what story would they tell if we looked over your expenditures? Would, would we see regular debits for tithing, right? The, the first fruits of your paycheck are actually going back to God. Better yet, would we see any spontaneous outbursts of generosity, <laughs> modest or, or even substantial sacrifices made for the sake of someone in need who you believe God put in your way? All right, I'm going down my wrist. What is this thing? What is this $800 thing? Oh, that's that spontaneous outburst of generosity I had a month ago. Yeah. <laughs> the main point, folks, the tithe was never intended to be the ceiling, the upper limits of giving. Rather, it was merely the ground floor. Hence the title for our message, The Tenth Floor. God says, the tithe is where financial faithfulness to me starts in tithing 10%. But it doesn't end there. As Randy Alcorn writes, he says, tithing is not the, the ceiling of giving, it's the floor. It's not the finish line of giving, it's the starting blocks. Tithes are like the training wheels to kind of launch us actually into the mindset and the lifestyle and habits of being a grace-driven giver. Malachi says that the Israelites actually robbed God, withholding not only their mandatory tithes, but also their voluntary offerings. By giving less than their free will offerings than God expected of them, they actually were robbing him. And that's harsh language, I know, but, but Paul encouraged voluntary giving, yet he also described it as an act of obedience. God does have expectations of us, even when our offerings are voluntary. It's my father looking in the rearview mirror who goes, you don't have to give anything but I just gave to you my own resources, child, and I'm going to give you more throughout your whole life. And to give less than he expects of us is to rob him. And and God doesn't expect us to give the same amounts, right? That's the idea. We're to give in proportion to how he's blessed us. So 10% may be a great place for some of us to start, but for others of us, what about 12%? It actually all depends. For someone making like $10,000 a year, you know what? Giving $1,000 annually as a tithe is a huge stretch. They're going to feel that. But for someone else making $250,000, you know what? Giving twenty-five dollars isn't really going to compromise their basic needs, like food or clothing or shelter, is it? Now, it may require actually choices about luxuries and wants in an upscale lifestyle. But in that case, a higher tithe or regular voluntary offering may be the most appropriate thing. And so we learn that the purpose behind the wealth that God has entrusted to so many of us here tonight, remember how we noted we began the series and we said, what happens when you get a raise or a bonus or some unexpected money comes into your life? And Ethel dies and it's like, oh my gosh, how lucky for me. What will I do with this inheritance? What am I going to do with this raise? Sorry, Aunt Ethel, sorry, that's like fictitious, okay. What am I going to do with this extra money? What am I going to spend it on? Now I can finally get a new wardrobe. Or upgrade my car or take that extra vacation. Uh Uh-uh. As Randy Alcorn memorably puts it, when God prospers us, it's never to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. God actually comes right out and tells us why he gives us more money than we need. It's not so we can find more ways to spend it on ourselves. It's actually so we can give generously back to God and to others in need. And it starts with a regular tithe for the people of God. That's the ground floor, the on-ramp to generous giving. Notice in verse 10, God commands, he says, bring thee what? Whole tithe. That is not one-fifth or what you think you can afford or what would be good to start with. Start with 10%. The 10th floor, that's a great place to begin. The sad truth is that's not the place where most modern believers are. <laughs> Nearly every study indicates that American Christians give on average between 2 and 3% of their income. In fact, the Barner Research Report states that one-third of all born-again adults said that they tithe in the year 2000, but a comparison to their actual giving and their household income reveals that actually only one-eighth actually did so. There's this massive gap between what the Bible teaches and what we all know is good and right and what we actually do. In the average church, it's estimated that about 15% of the congregation supports 90% of the budget. And just, you know, to speak real candidly, at Liquid, my guess it's even more lopsided. Probably more like 5 to 10% of folks here do the heavy lifting financially. But that's not why we're doing this series. 
Liquid isn't a problem. We're actually on budget. We're a little bit over budget. It's great. Things are going well. This is about your heart. It's, it's be- becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not about us paying bills. But it's about opening up this critical part of our lives to God's rule. Maybe for the first time, perhaps. Maybe you just got your first job and it's like, oh my gosh. I've opened up just about every other area of my life for transformation. My sexuality. And now you're talking my wallet? I said to someone between the first service, they said, wow, you seem kind of nervous. I was like, yeah, I'd rather talk. Money's like the M word. I'd rather talk about masturbation than money any day, hands down. <laughs> but, but the Israelites, it's funny, the Israelites had, believe it or not, three tithes. One went to their spiritual leaders, the Levites. The second was used for a feast. And the third was used for poor. The cumulative effect was, they guessed, that about 23% of all Israelites, their gross income was given to tithing, 23%. Now, against that backdrop, the tithe that God asks of us, 10%, looks even more modest as a baseline for giving. It's actually funny how attitudes about tithing often vary depending on where folks are in their spiritual journey. It ain't actually what you'd expect. Because some of you are sitting here now, it's like, this is a good message for like new believers. They need to hear this. <laughs> yeah, actually, wrong. <laughs> My pastor friend Nelson Searcy in New York City notes that he loves to talk about tithing actually with new converts because they're totally enthusiastic about it. I was like, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, they come to Christ and like they can't believe their good luck. He goes, I literally had someone say to me, Are you, wait, I get forgiveness, salvation, joy, eternal life, and I get to keep 90%? What a deal. He's, <laughs> they cannot believe this. You got to be kidding. That's okay. He says, it's the long time believers, the overchurched who grumble and look for loopholes. Bring the whole tithe, God says in Malachi 3.10. Anything short is robbing God. And that's hard because some folks say, you know, I, hey, I'd love to take this gradually. I mean, I'll start with 5%. But, you know, I mean, candidly, I mean, God uses harsh words here. But it, it, candidly, it's, it's literally like saying, you know, I used to rob six convenience stores a year. But I'm starting to see God's plan for this. And this year, by God's grace, I'm going to rob only three. <laughs> the point is not to rob God less. It's not to rob God at all. <laughs> God says, bring the whole tithe. And bring it where? What are the, what's the words there? Into the storehouse. This was actually not just a warehouse. That's not a, just a common noun. The storehouse was a specific place in the Jewish temple or, or the church, the Jewish church, the tabernacle for storing grain. If you look in your text, the message paraphrase is actually more accurate. It calls it the temple treasury. And so in the Old Testament, God instructed his people that their tithe was to go to the temple or the church. Now, you fast forward in the New Testament, the corresponding parallel is the church of Jesus Christ. And so that's the idea behind giving one's tithe to the local community of believers or the church. Maybe this is your church. That's great. This is, this is your storehouse. But maybe you belong to another church. Great. That's the place where God has put you. Tithe there. But it's interesting. Some people argue. They're like, well, since tithing is found predominantly in the Old Testament, I think we can discard the whole concept. <laughs> Seriously, there are books written on this. But Jesus is clear. He, he, didn't, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. I came to bring law to its perfect conclusion through grace. And grace is the reality that penetrated the heart of everyone in the early church in the New Testament. And it was grace-filled hearts that led once again to open hands. You remember in Acts 4 what happened with the New Testament church? Acts 4, verse 32. Not one of them claimed any of his possessions as his own, but everything was common property. And a wonderful spirit of generosity pervaded the whole fellowship. Indeed, there was not a single person in need among them. They wiped out poverty. (laughs) Although the New Testament doesn't directly mention mandatory giving, every example of giving in the New Testament goes far beyond the tithe. None falls short of it. Remember, Jesus raised the spiritual bar. He never lowered it. You think it's likely God would ask the Israelites to give 23%, but then modern, affluent American Christians, you're exempted. On one level, folks, yes, this is a test of our generosity. But more importantly, as this passage makes clear, in the end, it's mainly a test, not of our generosity, but of God's. I'd actually like to close with verse 10, because this is the powerful part of it. Second part, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see, see, if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. 
Mark this verse in your Bible. Write in the Bibles. Underline it. Because it's the only time in all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, in which you're invited, no, urged, to test God. To test his character. It's the only verse in the whole Bible. This is huge, folks. Because we think tithing is a test of our generosity, but it's not. It's a test of God's generosity towards us. While it banks on our faithfulness, it focuses on his promise. In other words, God says, you return to me what is mine. You give to others in need what I've entrusted to you. But then you get ready. Because when you begin aligning this area of your life with my purposes, I am going to bless your socks off. Bring it. Test me in this. You begin acting more like me, giving generously needs and putting others and me first, and you wait and see what happens. I'm, I love this. I'm going to throw open the floodgates of heaven. It's like this, 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 this expansive, like, pouring out so much blessing into your life that you won't even know what to do with it. Bring it on, says God. Tithing is a test, but a test of my faithfulness to you. You begin opening up the financial part of your life to me, and you think I'm going to leave you high and dry? That's like, no, I can't give the dime away because my father may never give it to me again. Test me and see if my blessings don't increase in your life. This is huge, folks. And you really have to understand what God means by this. It's an incredible, incredible covenantal promise that he's making here. When we give tithes and offerings with open hands to him and others, God says, I open my hands extra wide to you. I pour out blessings. And that means blessings that are tangible and intangible as well. Now, here's the deal. By the way, this, cha- this, kind of, this passage in Malachi is totally distorted and abused by the folks who are on the upper ends of the TV channels. This is not quid pro quo. This is not the prosperity gospel where you give to get something in return. I'm going to give God a little bit because I'm going to get back. Get back. This is where scripture is abused and distorted when, when, you, when you hear like, you call in and you just pledge 1995. And you're going to put God in a spot because it obligates him to bless you financially. <laughs> uh-uh. Health and wealth gospels. Randy Alcorn, he puts this perfectly. He says, it dishonors Christ. You know why? Because any gospel that is more true in America than in China is not the true gospel. Prosperity theology is actually built on a half-truth. God often does prosper givers materially. But he won't let us treat him like a no-lose slot machine or some cosmic genie like who does our bidding. Giving is a sacrifice, and sometimes you're going to feel that sacrifice. But God's payoff is very real. But it comes at the proper times. That's how Galatians 6 puts it. The proper time God will reward you. It may not be here today or tomorrow, but in eternity. God promises to bless those who are generous towards him. And that may be financially, by the way. That may be. You know, Jesus talked all the time about how God actually loves to entrust those who are generous towards him with even more. The rich get richer. That's Jesus said that, literally. <laughs> it may be emotionally or spiritually, though. I'm going to actually begin giving you dividends of joy, of peace, or contentment that you've formerly not known. This is a powerful promise in Malachi, not the prosperity gospel, but a simple cause and effect of living in obedience to God's command for financial faithfulness. He's saying, hey, there are consequences to your decision about honoring God or not in your finances. And actually, this, is a, you know, this would be a whole other disturbing part to notice, but it actually says, when you disobey... God says, look in verse 9, our finances exist under a what? Curse. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Conversely, when we obey, we are under what? In verse 10, a blessing. I will pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. So the final question facing each of us, quite honestly, is this. Would you rather live on 90% of your income inside the will of God the blessed financial life, or keep 100% for yourself and live outside of his will, the cursed financial life. That's literally the decision Malachi challenges us with. Test me, says God. It's your chance to actually know me better, to see how good I really am. Will you trust me with this area of your life? So the question is, will you take God up on his challenge? What's the next step for you? Where, where are you currently at? I realize this may be a big leap for some of us because the idea of, of regular tithing can be intimidating. Things are already tight. It's like, where am I going to get more from? I'm just trying to get out of debt. Ah, 
I know. It's God come before creditors. I actually pay off my debt to God before I pay off my debt to man. Yeah, you think God would honor that? You think he would? Test him. But perhaps for the first time, this is the moment where you actually say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to open up this area of my life that previously no one had access to because finances are painful and move from an irregular tip that I give to a first fruit tithes. You've been working for a few years and it's actually time to mature in this area and give back to God's what's God's. Not the leftovers, but the first fruits. Or maybe you've been a long time Christian, but you, you know, it may be a move, like I'll be real candid. I'll talk to you now about Colleen and me. I always try to be disclosing. Maybe this is the time where you move, actually you have been tithing, and you begin moving to a first fruits tithe. That's what it is for Colleen and me. See, we've been giving 10% from the moment we landed our first jobs. My, my, dad, my dad schooled me well. I never forgot the dimes. <laughs> but as I've been studying this and came upon this principle of first fruits giving, we realize that, you know what, we've actually not been giving God the full tithe that he requests. We've been giving out of what's left over once the deductions have been made from the real world. Seriously, it's how many folks do it. They give out of their net income. What's left after the deductions, after Social Security, after taxes, other deductions taken out. They tithe on the net, not on the, what's the opposite? Gross. And so as Colleen and I have been looking into exactly what we do give as this series has progressed, we realize actually we've been giving a tenth to liquid, but not really a first fruit. We pay our taxes, insurance deductions, that stuff, then God. And so for us, that's our next step, to tithe on our gross income. The total amount God gives us before any deductions are taken, before anyone else gets their paws on it, then we'll be first fruit givers. That's my next step. To others of us, this may be a chance to actually increase our tithe because you're a first fruit giver 10%. And you know what? God's like, I've given you so much and you can actually do more. I want you to do more. How about not the 10th floor? What if we move to the 12th floor this year? You've been treating tithing like a ceiling, like you check off the box. I did my thing. I've given you so much test me. See if I won't even give you more. You actually may have the gift of giving, and I want to give you the chance to activate it. So for others, this could be a chance to go beyond a tithe. God's blessed you so you can actually provide offerings as well. Spontaneous or voluntary contributions to those in need. I actually think that's probably the reason Colin and I have always tithed net, because the reality is we give to a handful of other ministries outside our church that need our financial support. We give a number of different offerings, special gifts to individuals, missionaries, ministries, and special projects we feel like God is calling us to. Maybe that's your next step. Tithing at church is a start, but it's time to actually open your hands in other areas where you see a need and you can voluntarily offer help. So if God's moving you, how do you get started? How do you get started? That's why we put this white sheet in the bulletin here. Again, not as some sort of fundraising campaign, but if God is prompting you to start opening this area of your life, We've made it easy to do so. As I said, there's, there's one thing God loves more than intentions, and that's action. <laughs> and you'll find a document called Giving at Liquid here, which describes uh, how you can take advantage of the power of automation, actually. It's quite honestly, that's all this is. I know one of the biggest challenges for like, to regular giving, at least for me and Kyle, is that we don't ever have cash on us. We never have money. We're like a mugger's nightmare. You know, in our ATM world, few people even carry around a checkbook anymore, Yes? What we're offering you is the ability, this option is called EFT, or electric fund transfer, electronic fund transfer. And all that it requires is for you to calculate what your monthly tithe will be, and then simply fill out the bank form that will make the debit whenever you decide. Automatic debit, first of the month or whatever week you circle for withdrawal. You're simply authorizing your bank to make a regular payment to the work of the church. So for whatever amount you decide, it starts and stops whenever you decide. It's pretty simple. You fill in the basic banking info, and then you know what you do? You put it in an envelope or just drop it in the offering here at Liquid next week. One time only. I'm not going to talk about this again. And it ensures that you tithe a percentage of your earnings as soon as you receive them. First fruit. And don't be unnerved, by the way, that it has the name Millington Baptist Church on it. That's our mother church. But your tithes and offerings go directly to support the work of God here at Liquid and abroad. Again, this eliminates all those little obstacles that negate good intentions. You know, you're, you're getting right with God. You're harnessing the power of automation. You don't have to fish for your wallet, worry about calculating if you miss a week. Eh, it's done. You fulfilled God's call in the area of giving and put yourself in a position to be blessed. So are you in? Take some time to process. Don't answer. 
I want you to pray this week. Talk with the owner. Talk with God about it. You're supposed to be consulting him as his money manager. As we've always said, giving's a personal matter between you and God. You aren't going to find arm twisting or guilt trips here. But if you hear God's invitation to finally get in on the 10th floor, we've made it easy for you to do that. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us guessing um, when it comes to your plan for money. You've blessed so many of us so extravagantly, and it is a privilege to give back to you. We want to offer you our first fruits, Lord, not out of grim duty or obligation, but out of love for you, Jesus, pure and simple. Father, you've shown us what first fruit giving is all about. You've, you've never given us your leftovers and second best, but you've blessed us, sacrificing to give us your firstborn son, Jesus. I want to thank you for your generosity towards us, for life, for our salvation, and for the invitation to help build your kingdom. We worship you now with our hearts, with our souls, and our hands. Would you empower us to give as you've so richly given to us through Christ Jesus? In his name we ask that. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.